The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful, so very grateful for the story that you have invited us into, this Christian story, this story of universal redemption, uh, rescue, of um, forgiveness, of reconciliation, and the promise of heaven. We thank you for your coming and your coming again, and we pray now that um, just as, as we look at who you are as a God who rescues, um, we pray that you would reveal yourself to us, uh, we who have been rescued, we who have been delivered. And so we ask God that you would give us a grateful hearts for that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. It's really, I think, is the key is that we have grateful hearts. I mean, so when we look at, like, for instance, in the sermon today, when we kind of look at sort of the state of things and then the promise to come, what what that should engender in us is is a grateful heart. That's what we are aiming for. And so when we look at the Christmas story, we look at the Easter story, we look at any of the um, what we are brought up into and caught up into. Uh, it should engender in us a, a heart of gratitude. And so that's what I, that's what I think the, uh, the goal, at least the emotional goal uh, for us is today. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Uh, it is the, um, it, for a lot of people, it is the worst travel day of the year. And uh, for those of our family who are, are traveling, we pray for them and for their safety. But so glad that you are here with us today. Um, what is Advent. How do you understand it? What is it? The season of the coming of Christ. That's a very concise and adequate uh, description. Good job. That's good. What else? Preparation. Preparation for what? Besides you know, packing, pack, uh, wrapping lots of presents and stuff. Preparation for the coming. Preparation for the coming. Not just. The first coming, but the second coming. Now, let's speak very clear in our own hearts and minds. He's not coming for the first time again. <laughs> like, he doesn't. We, he's already been born, and uh, and he's uh, already lived and died and r- rose again. So all when we, the, we tell the story, we're remembering it's not happening again. Um, it is important to remember, but we he has already become. He has already been incarnate, but we are anticipating that remembering and. And sort of aligning ourselves with the Israelites who waited and waited and waited and waited uh, for centuries for their Messiah. Uh, but we are, uh, like them, anticipating His coming again and for centuries and centuries and centuries. Uh, and, you know, I, I really, I, I will be delighted if it happens in our lifetime. Uh, I will be very surprised. Uh, wonderfully so. We continue to wait uh, and wait. So Advent is a season of waiting and anticipating the coming and the coming again uh, of Christ. Why is that important? I mean, it can't just be the, you know, other than we get to wear purple because that's nice. But what I mean, may it be so that that's the only time I ever wear purple in my life. But um, the um, what? Why is it important for us to uh, our Christian heritage? Okay, I can go there. Important to prepare yourself. Yes. What, Richard? We're recognizing the promise. We're recognizing the promise. All these things, you know, and it's a discipline. And I think it's a discipline because the, as as the 
in the culture we live in, whether it is progressively getting further and further away from the actual story of Christ, uh, or whether it just is away from the story of Christ and, uh, and we're further and further into it, I think that um, it is a discipline in the midst of all of the swirl of parties and gifts and greediness and sales and alcohol and family, whether we want to be around them or not, and just all the problems that come, you know, the good things and the bad things, the, the, the crazy of the season, it's actually a discipline to anticipate and remember and wait, to be quiet and still uh, before the Lord and let Him do what He's doing in His time. Because actually, uh, even as we have the discipline of waiting uh, for Christ to come, we also, we're all year long, we have the discipline of waiting on Christ to be to do what He does, right? It is there are many, many times we're just we've kind of done what we can do. We're saying our prayers, and we just need God to show up. And and um, and so, it waiting is a Christian discipline, and I love actually that it is built into the way we as Christians, as a Anglican, Episcopalian, liturgical Christians, tell the story that waiting. Uh, is a discipline that's built into how we do things. So that's good. That's a good, that's a good thing. Um, we're going to have a four-week study uh, in Advent on um, the coming king. The king is coming. And you can see it's, it's uh, advertised uh, beautifully on, on your table. Uh, not the uh, girls on out, which is also beautiful, and, and we're excited about that. But um, the coming of the king. And, um, and we want to look at, the, and, and I have to say that... The, um, I do this all the time. I love putting together these things, but I needed to give Trent an opportunity to put together a study. So Trent has put together the study. His family's traveling this week, um, but he'll be leading the next three, and I have every expectation that you'll come and support him and give him some good feedback and encouragement. Um, but the, um, the, uh, the, we're leading into this, this waiting. We're looking at the God who came, uh, the characteristics of God that are actually on display in the Christmas narrative, we're going to go back into the Old Testament and look at how those characteristics of God are, um, are on display. This is not something novel, in other words. And, um, and then we'll see how it meets us in the Christmas narrative. Today we're going to talk about God as a deliverer. Now one thing that uh, Trent uh, wrote uh, in the notes that he gave for me, he gave me very detailed notes of what, what I was to teach uh, today. And uh, he says, rightly, this is a season that promises joy and reconciliation and restoration, but there is a, what he says, and this is the pastor, he, he really is a better pastor uh, than I am. He says, uh, there is a type of Christmas blues that falls in a great number of, uh, in our culture during and after during the season and after everything's over. Uh, Christmas blues, I think, being this lament, everybody else is happy, but my, I have an empty chair next to me. Or a whole bunch of empty chairs. And, um, you know, there's estrangement, or there's death, or there's illness, um, or things just aren't the way they used to be, and, and that there's this sort of, um, what they call it, the Christmas blues. And, and so uh, we want to offer... Uh, as he says, something better, uh, not just for this season, but something we could take uh, through every uh, month of the year. So we want to we want to uh, offer to you and, and and to teach us about the God who is with us always, but specifically the the, the God who came. Um, what does the word Advent 
mean? Coming. Coming. That's right. So we might, um, the, or, or coming or arrival, either, either one. So we might talk about like the advent of the internet age. Be sort of the, the coming, like an, almost like the dawning uh, of, of it is, um, the, or the advent of television, or the advent of the smartphone. Any, anytime something sort of monumental has coming. Or if the queen or the pope uh, were to come from across the sea and they were to arrive at the port, that would be the advent of the, of the queen. And we wouldn't say it like that, uh, probably, but that would be a, a proper use of it. It's just this, this, uh, um, someone of great import or something of great import uh, and their arrival or their sort of bursting onto the scene. And Advent is uh, that we, where we, uh, it's this dawning, uh, like that anticipation, of the, the sun rising, uh, so to speak, the sun of God coming to us and shining His light uh, into the darkness. Uh, and, and yet it's far more, ad, the season of Advent is far more than just a, a, a moment that we celebrate 2,000 years ago. It's a celebration that Christ has come, that His power is at work in the present day, and that He will return. I mean, it's all at work properly and appropriately uh, in Advent. It's not just, you know, the time that He comes as a baby, but it's the time He comes as a as a ruling king, or we anticipate that, and a time to evaluate our own hearts. Is he the king? Has he dawned upon my heart? Is he the king of my heart? So, uh, all of that, we look to the past, we're looking forward uh, to what is coming, uh, and he um, says, part of Advent is the longing for a coming day when all has been made new in Jesus Christ. So that's, that's Advent, that's, that's a good description. Today we're going to look at God as Deliverer. God as a deliverer. Uh, what, what comes to mind when I say that? Just what, what is the image that comes to mind for you? God as deliverer. Any, any particular image come to mind? Somebody's mumbling. I can't hear you. I'm mumbling. Okay, but he's not. I, um, I guess I just think about him handing Christ down to us just from heaven. The image of, of God sort of in his hand, just handing Christ down to us. That's nice. Yes, Connie. Baby being delivered. Uh, baby being delivered. I actually have not thought of that at all. That makes perfect sense. And, and I've never been a mother, but I have been in the room. But, um, but I've, I've had that. Uh, so this is, this is not God as sort of obstetrician. But, um, the, um, but I mean, that... that Yes, I mean all of that. I think is, is there. What else? Anything else come to mind? Yes. The American, the, uh, American Express PBS driver. Bringing okay, you're gonna have to. The American Express PBS delivering the great gift. Yes. All right. So that's that's good. So really, um, I, I actually I find some great help in in these descriptions because that's not at all where my mind went. Um, uh, and so what we're going to talk about today is the Exodus, uh, God delivering uh, us, delivering us from our sin, delivering us, uh, the people of, of Israel from oppression, the Exodus and then the new Exodus. But God as deliverer, uh, the, the one who delivers the presence, the one who delivers the baby, uh, I think that is helpful. That is helpful. Um, we think of a, a, a liberator, a defender, a hero. And certainly we think of a Savior. Um, so we're going to take a look at the people of God in Exodus 
And then we're going to go to Matthew chapter 1 uh, as we finish up uh, and to see how Christ uh, sort of fulfills that or, or focuses uh, God as deliverer. Um, so you know the context of, of the Exodus where uh, Joseph had, had become sort of the, the great king of, of Egypt. He wasn't the Pharaoh, but he was second in command. This is Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob's 11th son, Joseph, who had been sold into slavery. He brings his, his, all his brothers and his dad down. And then, uh, so those, that, those are the 12 patriarchs. And they, um, they start uh, having uh, fam- families there, and the Pharaoh loves them, but then that Pharaoh dies, and um, there is a new Pharaoh, and actually probably a succession of, of Pharaohs as the patriarchs died, and, and as the... Um, uh, but as, as God's hand and blessing was upon the people of Israel, they became a mighty nation uh, there in Egypt. And Pharaoh, uh, as our story picks up again, uh, the Pharaoh, uh, who is now probably 350 years after uh, Joseph's uh, ascension, uh, essentially, uh, that Pharaoh begins to get nervous about these, um, I mean, they've been there 350 years, but they're foreigners. They're not Egyptians, they're Hebrews. And, uh, and they are, they worship some other god, they're, they don't do the Sphinx thing or whatever, the cats, and they don't do whatever it was that the, the Egyptians uh, did. What, what, you probably learned all about that when you were over, over there, didn't you? But um, you can tell me after class. The, um, um, it says, Verse 8, I mean, Exodus chapter 1, verse 8, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And what the author means by this, because this is hundreds of years later, that he did not uh, have the relationship with Israel that Pharaoh and Joseph had back in that day. He did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses, and but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. So that's the context. Pharaoh is oppressing and opposing Israel. Let me ask you, what was he afraid of? Somebody taking his power away. Humanity is, has this love affair with power. And I really think that that is because we're made in God's image. We're made to be powerful. Uh, we're made in God's image. But we are made and designed to have a power. We were, we were called and given to be stewards of the earth and to have dominion over all the earth. And yet... In our fallenness, in our um, self-serving state, we want God's power. We want to be that that the power that is given to us is disordered, and we want the power that and the authority that is due only to God. 
And, um, and I don't think Pharaoh was particularly unique in this. He had a particular amount of authority. He lived in a culture that was very happy to deify him. And so he had probably a little more of a God complex than you and I do. But we are certainly uh, susceptible uh, to that same identity. Pharaoh was afraid to lose his own power. So he abused the people who should have been a blessing to him from God. Like if he, I, you just wonder, I mean it had, it's, the story in a sense had to be like this. But you wonder if he had said, you know what, God has blessed these people. Let's see what we can do to, to increase their blessing. I mean, what a blessing they would have been to, to Egypt. Unless, I don't know, I mean, they're still people. I wonder if, they, if he was right. That maybe, they, maybe he had a cause. The Bible doesn't say, but maybe he had cause to, to worry about them aligning themselves with another enemy against, against them. It seems to me he certainly gave them cause to, um, to, to want to rebel uh, by enslaving them rather than um, partnering with them in a, in a sense. But, but again, we have a love affair with power. We move ahead to chapter uh, 2 in Exodus, and God hears Israel's groaning. Um, what, we, what we're going to skip over is that Moses was born in the midst of um, this persecution where Pharaoh said all male children must die. If, you're, if they're born, uh, the midwife has to kill them or the parents have to throw them in the Nile. That uh, would be a really uh, bad situation to live in, I think, um, is to say it completely mildly and understated. Um, I, I think that, uh, so Moses, Moses' mother hides him she puts him in a basket that Pharaoh's daughter sees the basket, brings him into his house, raises him. And so until it's about 40 years. So, I mean, we're, they were talking oppression and slavery for 40 years. Uh, and, um, and Moses, you know the story, Moses um, kills the Egyptian who's fighting with the Hebrew. And then the word gets out and so Moses flees. Verse 23 in chapter 2 says, During those many days the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Maybe, the, In other words, we, we see there's a changing of the pharaohs, and maybe, there is a, um, maybe there's a, a ray of hope here. What happens is Moses, is, uh, he was, Moses was raised in the household of Pharaoh, and so Moses would have been the contemporary. I think that if you saw Moses, Prince of Egypt, I, I think they probably got that right. Um, uh, Moses certainly would have known the Pharaoh uh, boy who, who was raised. He's probably you know, about his age, somewhere between 30 and 40 years old, uh, probably. And, um, and so it says, During those many years, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered His covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. A strange way to say that. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. What does that mean that God knew? What, what might the author be trying to communicate 
Why didn't he say, so God did something about it? Or It also says he remembered his covenant. So what, what is going on here? Yeah, so Sissy, if you couldn't hear, Sissy said he knew he had, God knew he had to save them because of the promise he made to Abraham and uh, years ago. Josh? I would say by leaving it very open like that, it leaves it kind of all-encompassing. You know, he knew it was time. He knew it was, he knew what he needed to do. He knew what he was going to do. He knew everything. Yes, he knew everything. Yeah, he knew. He just leaves it open. And, and yeah, it. okay. He, I think that there's, you know, as you probably know, I mean, sometimes um, the word no in the Bible is, is a euphemism for intimacy. It doesn't always have to be sexual, but it's just it's an intimate word. And God knew uh, intimately the groaning and the cries of, uh, and the anguish of the people, now generations old. Um, and they're crying out, they want relief from this uh, terrible oppression. And God heard their groaning, and God remembered His covenant. I always think that is uh, p- potentially a strange thing. What does it mean that God remembers? Was it like He heard a song on the radio and thought, Oh my gosh, I made a promise. Shoot, I've got to do something about that. You know, He's coming across, He's cleaning out His drawers and sees you know, an old card. Or, you know, Oh, look, I remember this covenant. Gosh, you know, He's looking through His family. What does it mean that God remembers in um, in Genesis chapter I guess it's 8 Noah's out on a boat in the middle of nowhere literally in a flood is encompassing at least a large part of the earth and it says God saw him and remembered his promise when God remembers, He is fulfilling and acting upon His promises. So when He remembered His covenant, it doesn't mean that He had forgotten His covenant. It means that He is now fulfilling and acting upon the promise that was made all those years and years and years ago. He intervenes on behalf of those who are His children. That is who God is as deliverer. He is intervening. And the story, of course, continues uh, with Moses who has fled Egypt. Uh, He's now married. He's got a son out in the land of Midian. He's been there for 40 years at this point. He's 80 years old. He turns aside as he's uh, watering the sheep and sees a bush that is on fire but is not being burned. And he goes to see and God speaks to him out of the bush. And uh, it is... A, a holy moment. This is where we hear the name of God as I am. Who shall I say sent me? I am. Tell him I am. But, um, but listen to what, what he says to Moses. The, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. There's that word know again. And I have, come, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
So, God says, I have heard their cry, and I have come down. Now, I think any of us can make our way to Jesus from there. Um, but no, we don't need to quite yet. Um, so, we know the story of Moses and the plagues. Moses confronts Pharaoh. Pharaoh uh, refuses. There's uh, repeatedly ten plagues, and the final, uh, the final... Uh, blow the final plague is the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh says, "Get out!" They all leave. They are pinned up against the Red Sea. Uh, Pharaoh changes his mind again, comes after them with whatever chariots and horses are left uh, there in Israel. And this uh, is where we see the uh, the Red Sea part. And this uh, this Exodus, this parting of the Red Sea is uh, the seminal act of deliverance in the entire Old Testament. Uh, this is uh, the, whenever Israel uh, sees uh, and questions who they are throughout their history uh, and who God is, He is the God who brought them up out of Egypt. I mean, this is, it is the parting, it is the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. I'm not one of those Reed Sea people where they just kind of swish their way across and the and the horses couldn't plop their way, you know, across these this you know ankle deep water. I believe uh, that what is being said is that the deep sea was parted and they walked across on dry land. And um, and then it closed as as Pharaoh came in at, with his army. Afterwards, it closed in over them, and it was the ultimate act of defeat of Pharaoh and his army and the vindication of the people of God. Who started complaining about three days later because they didn't have uh, food? Uh, which, you know, that's an important thing. You get hungry out in the desert. But um, what we see here is clearly on display from the earliest moments, the most important moment, I think, in, in Israel's uh, early history, is that God is, in fact, the deliverer. That God is the one who hears the suffering uh, of the people and acts upon it. But what is interesting, and I think what is relevant for us, is that God has heard their groaning and is acting behind the scenes in order to alleviate their groaning. But while He is acting behind the scenes, you know what's still happening to them? They're groaning. And in fact, as He is uh, beginning to enact, it actually gets worse. And remember, you remember that part of the story where they, they say, uh, the Egyptians get mad and they say, well, you still have to make bricks, but we're not giving you straw anymore. You have to get your own straw and, and, and the people are thrown into chaos and they're mad at Moses and Moses is mad at God and it's just this whole cluster really of, 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 um, of difficulty and, and seeming chaos and, and what in the world is God doing? Actually, he, this is deliverance. And I wonder if it is comforting uh, to you to know that when the people are crying out and they're suffering and that as they are still suffering that God has heard them and he's working to alleviate it, even though they're still suffering. I wonder if that, if you can relate to that. If you can hear a time in your life where you're calling out to God, and it seems like the, the, your your uh, prayers are bouncing off the ceiling, or there's God's just not doing anything about this. If that helps to know that He's actually working behind the scenes to alleviate the suffering, and it takes. A long time. In fact, many people, many of the 
um, Israelites would have died, not ever have. I mean, just because it took eighty years or, or whatever it was, it, it, um, they they would have died, not ever seeing the consummation of God's alleviation and His deliverance. And yet, very clearly, still, God was working. God was working. You know, we I've said before we live in a microwave culture, but we have a crockpot God. I mean, we, you know, we have a God who says, I'm coming down. And how does He do it? He sends a baby. <laughs> a poor baby. Who has to grow up for 30 years. And even then, doesn't do things the way people expected. That God is, is slow, but sure and bringing about His deliverance. He is the God who delivers. Why is it important to you that God is a God who delivers? To you personally or to us corporately. Why is it important? We can't save ourselves. We can't save ourselves. I think there's always the, you know, the hope and the knowledge of knowing that promise is there. Because when you're going through something bad, it's like that, that's that point you reach where... You just want to give up. And if you don't remember that God is, like you said, working behind the scenes or still there, you get off course and you get off focus. So to have that faith in that he will deliver, maybe I won't see it right now, but it will be there in the future. Maybe yes. I won't see it, but somebody else will see it that's left behind me. That still gives me hope. You know, I, Melinda says there's always hope. It gives hope to know that maybe I won't see it, but someone will see it. You know, I... I <laughs> That takes, that takes some courageous faith, I think. Again, we want, we want to hit the button and 30 seconds later we've got an answer, right? If it takes that long. I mean, that's what we want. We, but, but we have a God who's working behind the scenes. You know, I've, I, I'm pretty sure I've told this story before. My, my mentor, Frank Limehouse, his father came to faith, saving faith in Jesus Christ at the age of 90. And I just think of all the people who prayed for his salvation and died before they ever saw it. And yet God heard their prayers. God was working at just the right time. There's so many uh, ways that I think it is a comfort to know. Well, let's, let's, God is deliverer. I think we've established that. Um, he is not a stranger to where you are, to um, what you're going through. Um, so let's, let's jump ahead to Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 21. And there is a carpenter who has been told uh, by his fiance, I'm pregnant, but it's not what you think. <laughs> and he's a, you know, he's a good man, and he is, it says, Matthew tells us, he's unwilling to put her to shame. He was going to divorce her quietly, but as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She's telling the truth, Joseph. Now, I've got to tell you, I've had some crazy dreams in my life, but I've never had an angel appear to me 
and dream. I don't know if any of you have had that uh, incredible, very unique and rare experience where we, not you didn't dream about an angel, but an actual. You heard from the Lord in a dream. I, I think it can happen, but um, but it happens here. There's no doubt. Joseph doesn't go. Woo! I wonder if that was the pizza I ate last night. I mean, he he is he he is very sure. There is no doubt. It was he has heard from the Lord. And, and you can imagine that he went to Mary, and despite the skepticism of his own parents and the, um, the shame that he would have uh, had to endure in his culture, um, he probably was n- never more sure of anything that he was going to take Mary as his wife. And this is what he said, the angel says to Joseph, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. You, Joseph, carpenter, middle class at best, shall have be the one who is to bear the, um, uh, and to raise the Son of God. And He will save His people. Like the one you're raising, we're all, you are all His people. And He will save you all from your sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call His name Emmanuel. Which means, of course, God with us. Joseph is visited by the angel, and and, and he is told that Mary will bear a son. He will save His people from their sins. Moses saved and delivered the people of God out of a physical oppression. uh, And that points us ahead to the coming of Christ, uh, which represents a new exodus. uh, That He has taken us, delivered us from the oppression of sin. Now, it's a partial deliverance so far, right? You are saved. You are saved being saved, and you will be saved. Right? There are, you have been declared to be righteous. You are being made and sanctified in the image of God through repentance and humility, through study and service, through living your life in intimacy with Jesus, and you will receive the promise of everlasting life. This is a new exodus. You are being pulled out of sin which oppresses us. Um, this coming of Christ sounded the death toll for death. The death knell uh, for death itself. Death, the death of sin once and for all. And we realize in Advent that Christ has come and because Christ has come we have been delivered. Uh, that, that is... See, Advent... Last week was Christ the King. And, I, and, and it... Um, where it was the exaltation, sort of the final exaltation of Christ in the Christian year. And, and yet, uh, what we looked at was Christ on the cross. And so Advent is this sort of transition time where we are um, continuing Christ the King and looking for His coming again as the King. And sort of in transition, we're also beginning the story over again. And by the time we get to December 24th, we'll kind of forget thinking about Christ coming again and just think about Christ coming the first time. <laughs> but it is this transition time, where this in-between time where we're 
the lingering story of last year is uh, we're looking ahead um, for Christ come and we will be delivered. Uh, you know, for us, we do not need to fear death. I, somebody said, and I probably have said before too, that I, I'm not afraid of death, but I am afraid of dying. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what that's going to be like, but I know that once my eyes finally close and I wake up, that I will be with Christ. We don't have to fear. No, we, there's lots to take, uh, lots to do to get our affairs in order, to take care of those we love, and, and so on and so forth. But we do not have to fear if we are in uh, the arms of Christ now that we won't be, we don't have to fear that we won't be in the arms of Christ later. You never have to worry, have I done enough? Because the answer is no, you haven't done enough, but He has done everything uh, through His life, His death, His resurrection. Um, so in Advent, we realize that Christ has come and we have been delivered. Why didn't God, let me ask you this, why didn't He just end the suffering? I mean, couldn't He just be, snap His fingers and all is right with the world? Why didn't He end the suffering? Why do we have to wait? Everything good is worth waiting for. That's why we think that really it's... Hasn't. Yeah, you don't learn from it. I guess, really, I think the most growth I've seen is in the deepest despair that I've ever had. Hmm. You know, there must be a reason or a rationale for that. You know, I don't understand it all, but that's how I feel about it. Thank you. That's a very vulnerable statement. Thank you. Melinda said that the, the most I ever learned was from the deepest despair I ever had. Thank you. Um, I was going to say it's because as a people, we haven't learned. The Israelites hadn't learned because after... He said after three days they started grumbling again because they got sick of eating manna. Yeah. So if you know, and God knew this that we're terrible people. <laughs> yeah. We still need to be saved. Yeah. God is good and and we are not right. So we we still. Do I mean we we live in this in between time, this time between the already what has already happened and what has not yet happened, between the already and the not yet. I, I think also that we, um, for whatever reason, God wants us to experience a little of what Jesus suffered. That just as you have a God who has experienced suffering and can align Himself with you, that you experience suffering to align yourself with Him. That there was a cosmic suffering of which we will know nothing about because of what He took. That God the Son was eternally and cosmically separated from God the Father. Uh, he took a, a burden that you and I will never know because of what He took. Um, it is, I think, to build, the suffering is also to build our suffering, I mean, build our character and, our, and our, to deepen our faith because suffering is where the rubber of faith meets the road of life. Uh, it's suffering. It's an, you know, the good, anybody can say, you know, God is good when times are good, but, but can you say God is good when times are not good? I don't want you to go through times that are not good. I don't. I love you. I'm your pastor. I want good things for you. But I, um, but I know that it won't be wasted. Those times also help us to help others make it through those times. Well, that's right. I mean, when, I mean it's, it's one thing for, um, for me to come and help someone who's struggling with alcohol. It's much better for someone who has struggled with alcohol to come and help somebody who's struggled with alcohol. It's one thing for me to comfort someone who's lost a child. It's another thing for someone who has lost a child to come and comfort someone. I mean, there's a, 
there is a, um, a gift that we who have been through suffering can give to those who are going through suffering. It For sure. Work on our part. It requires work on our part. A covenant implies that there's a, it's, a, it's an agreement and that, that some sort of response or work on our part is required to reach salvation. Yes. Some, well, some sort of work on our... I, I think I'd be real careful about that. I think you just said that it's some sort of work on our part is required to reach salvation. No, to get deliverance from, from God. To, well, yes. Yeah, so to... We will be judged by what we have done, and yet we're given total grace. Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that requires some more exploration. I, I don't want to say that we have any contribution to our salvation uh, other than the sin work. from which we. Works, yeah. It requires a response. A response. Yes. Yeah, we open. We open to him in, in faith. Yeah. For sure. For sure. Yes. Yeah, we have to, and then you know, I think you could then say, well, what is. Uh, how did we respond positively to that? And that in itself, in retrospect, is a grace, but certainly we, we, uh, we respond, and we have to respond. We have to open ourselves to the deliverance that God offers. It also takes us varying amounts of time to understand it intellectually. Yes. And then to really understand it in the spirit. And yeah. Sometimes that takes 80 years. Yeah, somebody said that the, the 18 inches from, from here to here is, is the longest journey we'll ever take, you know, and so uh, I, think, I think you're right. The, the intellectual understanding and the emotional understanding are often two very, very different things. Well, folks, this is a lot to think about. I hope that you will take great comfort in knowing that God uh, is deliverer, um, not just this Advent, but all, always and forever. And I look forward to seeing you in church, if I have not already. And I look forward to seeing you back here next week as Trent takes us through this wonderful class that he has designed. God bless you.